Hello and welcome to Supervision Smorgasbord, a podcast full of tips, tricks, and interviews with experts to help you enjoy being a supervisor. Here's your host, Dr. Tara Sanderson. All right, everybody, welcome and thank you for joining me. Today we're talking with Nikki Bidlingmeyer from Power of Pods Therapy and Consulting. Nikki is a mom to two young kiddos, two and four, an LCSW, an infant family early childhood specialist, a reflective practice facilitator, a black belt in karate, a lover of buffalo chicken wings, and is from Los Angeles, California. Uh, She provides play therapy, parent coaching, parent training, and perinatal therapy, as well as consulting with other clinicians and other professionals. And I want to read you a smidge from her website because I think it sums her up really well. I will never promise perfection. Let's be real. Pregnancy and parenting perfection is a myth. Real life with kids, especially young kids, is a mess. And I want you to bring that mess to our meetings or let me come and visit you in person. And I'll use my expertise and a good amount of humor and silliness to help you develop your family's unique toolkit for surviving and thriving. When I read this little bio, I said, I have to meet you. <laughs> like, you oh, I'm so glad. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me here today, Nikki. I can't wait to share your passion and your expertise with the community and the world. I'm really happy to be here with you. Great. Well, I always start my um, podcast with a question for my interviewee. So today's question is, if you could spend a morning watching any cartoon, what would it be? Oh, good question. Um, all kinds of things just flew through my mind. Um, but I'm going to have to settle on Daniel Tiger, which is less about me and my childhood and more about what um, I prefer to watch with my kids right now. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Isn't it amazing how much cartoons have changed and not changed? Right. Like I have watched some of the like Thomas the Tank Engine to, you know, I want to say Bob the Builder all the way back to rewatching some of the old like um, I think Gummy Bears cartoons that I watched as a kid. And she was um, (laughs) there's like this still this undertone for kids, right? When they're cartoons for kids, not for cartoons for adults, but cartoons for kids, there's still this undertone of like, here's the message of how to be a good little human, right? Mm -hmm. In all sorts of different components. And then, you know, we move into all sorts of other things as we get older, but I just, um, yeah, I totally miss having morning cartoon time. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, now that I've had time to think more about it, for some reason, Ren and Stimpy is like stuck in my head and it's not appropriate for children at all. But I think I watched it as a kid. But the more appropriate one is the Magic School Bus. Did you ever Oh, yes. I watched that for a good long time. It's a good one. Yeah, that is a good one. Encouraged so much curiosity. Uh So much like thinking through problem solving. It's a good Mm -hmm. one. I enjoyed that one. Well, today we are going to talk about kind of a variety of things, and I want to start with talking about reflective supervision um, and that reflective practice. Um, Tell me, maybe start with some definitions or some some way for us to understand what that means and how that applies to supervision. Oh, this is making me wish I had looked it up so I could have a, a more distilled professional sounding definition, but I think that 
For me, reflective supervision is just being able to, gosh, I want to use the word reflect, but that seems redundant, but really it is. It's just, it's looking back on your session and, um, and thinking how, how was I feeling in that moment? How was my client feeling in that moment? What might have been happening for me? What might have been happening for my client? And if you're so overwhelmed by whatever you were feeling in that moment, you know, having a reflective practice supervisor um, or um, maybe it's not a supervisor, maybe it's just a consultant because I work with a lot of different um, professionals, but just having someone to help ground you and understanding your own feelings first um, and, and where they are and what they are. And then once you do that, you can move through it and think, okay, I feel this way, but what, what triggered that for me? What brought that about? What might be happening for this family with these behaviors um, that are so difficult um, for me to, to manage? That was a really long answer. No, I, I think you, I think you not only explained it well, but you, you gave some of those examples that I think I would be looking for in, if I was looking for a supervisor or a consultant in this area, like how would that look in, in real life? And, and that's what I got from that answer was it would look like you take the time to think about how you were in that session, what came up for you in that session and do some work to, I don't know if the right word is resolve that, but like analyze it and look at it and understand it so that then you can like fold back into the work that needs to be done with the client. Um, I would liken it maybe to like sharpening us as a tool in the process of therapy, right? Like we are making sure that we are honed correctly so that the client gets the best services out of it. If we've got little chunks out of our ability to work with this client or stuff that comes up that we're not attending to, it makes it harder for us to do good work with our client. Absolutely. And I think, you know, especially in community mental health settings, but I don't know, I know a lot of private practice facilities or uh, practitioners that are also working with like upwards of 30 clients, but yeah. that's their own choice to punish themselves. <laughs> um, <laughs> but especially in community mental health, you're working with so, so many people and so many people's feelings and experiences that, um, our natural inclination is to, um, is to create boxes, yeah. um, you know, and when you're done, you switch it off and it's, it's too difficult and overwhelming um, to be thinking and processing it all the time, especially if you have back to back to back. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's really easy to move through your, your practice day to day without really processing things that happen. Um, and sometimes when we do, we spend time processing the symptoms and the, and the behaviors to be like a clinical, to find the clinical lens, to find the clinical focus. But again, like the next step is more difficult, which is focusing on what came up for you. Um, I think that's, it's interesting, you know, having worked with many supervisees over the last 10 years, some people are really inclined to it. Like I'll say it might, I am. I am very inclined to talk about how I feel. Um, others, not so much. Yeah. <laughs> and that's been a challenge for me too, as a supervisor, um, to really, to figure out, well, to first acknowledge that not everybody is like me. <laughs> not everyone shares my opinion, shares my values, and that's okay. Um, but then really finding um, what, what has to, you know, like for you to be a good clinician, how can I help you 
um, get value out of this process and not have it feel like punishment. Ah, yeah, that is a really good point. Because especially for somebody who doesn't feel like they they attune well to their own feelings or that they are that that's a part of the job that is actually necessary. I could see this being um, something that you have to really kind of draw out of them. <laughs> to be, right. um, like they don't want to talk about it with me, you know, and that's, that's something I have to just let be and sit with and, and figure out, you know, okay, how can I honor your ask that you need time to think about this yourself and also you know, do that together because I'm, I'm responsible for supporting you in this work. Yeah. Well, and let's, let's spend a moment thinking about that from, from the hat perspective. So I always think about being a supervisor requires us to wear a lot of hats, whether we are their um, supervisor clinically and administratively or not, we do have to keep some of those pieces on our heads of a good clinical supervisor not only helps the client grow or the supervisee grow and learn new tools and all sorts of things, but we are also just responsible for them. Like this is, this is an element of, I have rules and laws and ethics and guidelines that I have to keep in mind and hold you responsible to, and me hold me responsible to, in addition to just growing and becoming the best clinician you can be. And that's, that may be a hard ask when they look at you and say, well, I'm not sure I want to really dive into the stuff you want to dive into um, and holding that space. Right. Yeah. No, I think it's, yeah, it's a vulnerable place to be. And for some, for some people, I think it lands as um, evaluative, you know, Mm -hmm. for, or, or too, too much like therapy Um, which is also something I spend time talking about with people, you know, um, but it's, it's, it's really tough for some people. And I've had to really spend um, a good amount of time thinking about what that brings up for me when I meet that resistance, Uh what that means for me, how do I honor that feeling and let it be just like if it were a client, right. Um, and still challenge them, um, to do the reflection that's really required for us as clinicians to be effective in our yeah. work. Yeah. Tell me more about the how you define that line between uh, the reflective practice piece and kind of moving too much into a, a therapy component with your supervising. Yeah. You know, I think um, for the for the clinician who is really inclined to do reflection and supervision, I'll use that example first. I think that's easier. You know, I'll, I might find myself um, talking with them about feelings that came up in session, and then it will naturally go to you know a question like, you know, I'm I'm curious. You know, these are these are all um, valid feelings and and really big feelings, um, but they do seem bigger, you know, than, uh, than, than others might have in that situation. I just wonder if there's something going on, um, for you or a memory for you that might, might be a part of this, your personal experience. Um, and then the floodgates open, (laughs) you know, um, and that's, that's a person who's really comfortable with this or already feels safe in the supervisory relationship or is maybe more inclined to be very open. Um, and then, you know, as long as it's related to therapy, right, um, their therapy practice anyway, um, mm-hmm. clinician, that I think that can feel okay. Um, uh, I think where it maybe 
toes the line is it comes up every single session and you find yourself talking about it over and over and over again. And it, it not so much is pertinent as, mm, I, that's tricky. You know what I'm saying? It's not, pertinent, but it is. But if I start to feel that they need more support with this, mm-hmm. then it's just relevant to grounding in their session or thinking about it between sessions. Um, you know, that, that becomes a conversation of, you know, have you thought about therapy? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think for the clinician who is less inclined for this um, kind of openness and reflection about personal experiences and counter-transference, um, it's, uh, it's almost, it's, it, it comes up as def- defensive, I think, a lot. You know, um, I'll notice I'll notice that they maybe avoid talking about a particular client or they um, talk about a client as very difficult um, or they're not doing the work or, you know, um, I'm not seeing any progress and it's because of them, X, Y, and Z. It's all externalized. Mm-hmm. That tends to be um, a cue to me that there, there might be something else happening there. And then, you know, I have to rely on what relationship we have established to, to kind of explore that. But yeah. yeah, I think that that is, is a really good point on when people are really connected with this type of work, it, it becomes more about like reining in and keeping it focused on what's going to benefit you to do this work with your client. And when you need more support, you need to be going and getting your own therapy versus the other where it's more about expansion of saying like, okay, sure, the client needs to do more work. And what's going on for you here? Like, let's expand into your stuff in this space because it is all of our work with clients is relationship based it is both of us in this space trying to help each other get where the client really wants to go and the client needs to give us feedback the client needs to respond to our interventions and those pieces but also you know we need to be watching and and adjusting and noticing our own stuff in that space Mm-hmm. Yeah. And really, you know, exploring, is it, is it our relationship, this client and, and me together in this room week to week um, that, that might be in the way and, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but really thinking about there, there's so many reasons why that might happen and not all of them are anyone's fault. Yeah. Um, but really being able to, to just objectively think about that. In, um, in supervision, I think can be really important. And, and I think that's really, it's really difficult um, yeah. for, for a lot of clinicians. For sure. What would be maybe um, like an example of a typical intervention you would do um, in reflective supervision? Typical intervention? Yeah. Like what kinds of questions do you ask or what kinds of like things are you kind of targeting? Mm. That's a tough, that's a tough question. Because I think it kind of reminds me of the when you were talking about podcasts and like how how does this happen and it's like organic and more conversational. I don't know that I have set interventions that I use in reflective supervision. Kind of makes me curious if there are some and I'm missing them. Hmm. Um, but but I'll, I'll typically ask um, ask them to to let me know what their agenda is. Like if they have and I do. I ask people to come prepared to supervision and. I find that surprising too, that that's difficult for mm. people. 
um, you know, to, to come prepared with um, specific questions or, you know, your top two clients that you want to make sure we get a chance to talk about. And I think that says something, you know, about um, that person's experience in their practice at this moment, that they don't have time or they're not inclined to even think reflectively before supervision to do that. Um, so I mean, if that's an intervention, I, I definitely ask people to come prepared. Um, and, and then I usually just ask people to, to talk me through how things are going with particular clients. Um, I avoid, I avoid questions. It's very similar to my, my clinical practice with adults, even though I, yeah, most of it is parent support, but I, I tend to avoid questions and um, express curiosity, sit with silence if my curiosity is not met with a, an immediate answer, <laughs> um, talk about how I am feeling. I think, okay, that would be an intervention, I suppose, in the strictest sense is just noticing how I feel as they talk about a client or noticing how I'm feeling in the supervisory dynamic. Um, I, I'm thinking about a recent experience where I, I just had to name it. It was making me really uncomfortable. <laughs> There's a lot, a lot of things happening in the larger context of our um, community mental health often um, that makes people unhappy, myself oh. and supervisees. Um, and, you know, sometimes that shows up, often that shows up in supervision. So just naming it, you know, I've noticed, um, I've noticed that you're really unhappy lately and it takes up a good half of our supervision. Um, these kind of, not even talking about it directly, but you're, you're noticeably unhappy. Um, and I'm finding that that makes, that, that is showing up in myself. Um, like I'm feeling a certain way before our, our supervision and for the first half of our supervision, it's difficult to settle in. You know, um, I just want to acknowledge that and ask if there's anything I can do to support. Um, so yeah, just naming my feelings um, also is is a is a big one. Or you know, listening to someone describe um, their interactions with a client, or um, as we often do, kind of trying to um, mimic how a client was talking or what they were asking in the session, and then just noticing, like, wow. You know, as you were talking about all of this, I am feeling an urgency to mm -hmm. to solve this problem. Like right now, I'm thinking all the things, trying to think how we can solve this. I can only imagine how that must be making you feel having sat in that room with the, with that parent for a whole hour. Wow. It's an urgency there. Wow. I love that. And I think, um, I think, I think sometimes we as therapists and supervisors get scared to call something an intervention and we rely on a lot of our instincts that came from a lot of years of training. And, but I think you named several in there that were, that were really clear interventions of like noticing our own feelings and bringing those up into the space, noticing our reaction to somebody else in that space and, and making sure we name that and mm -hmm. talk about what, what is deeper inside of that when, when we uh, get confronted with it, have utilizing curiosity and, <laughs> and silence. I think that that's a very appropriate one for a lot of supervisees is, you know, they want to fill the space with, you know, let's just get through this supervision thing sometimes, or sometimes they're just like, yeah, I didn't prepare and utilizing silence in that space can be so powerful too, of like, 
well, I'm, I am still going to just wait here for you to bring something up because there's something to bring up and we'll just, we'll just wait for it. It's fine. Um, We use a lot of our own therapeutic skills in that space um, as well as really just bringing forward um, how, how they are doing in relation to their clients. I think that that's a big question that we need to be asking more of, of our, of our folks, whether it's in community mental health or in private practice or wherever they are of, of saying like, okay, when thinking about your caseload, Tell me what like your your initial response is when you wake up in the morning and think you get to go to work today. What is your body responding with? How do you how do you get to the place where you are doing this work and and be responsive to that that feeling of if it's dread, then what can we do to help navigate that? If it's excitement great. What do we do to make sure that you are also taking care of yourself? Um, because sometimes when we get too excited about something, we may neglect our, our own <laughs> selves in that space. Yeah. Yeah. I am super curious about your work with the child welfare system and working in community mental health as a supervisor, as a, as a clinician. What do you think is uh, maybe what, maybe let's stay on the positive side for a moment. What do you think is going well in community mental health when it comes to training supervisees up to be clinicians? Hmm. Well, I'm biased because um, my passion is first to five work, um, but Department of Mental Health is doing a really great job with trainings in that area. They, well, I don't know, and maybe other states or uh, other counties, but certainly LA County, um, since since I started, um, I, I'm really grateful for, for all the trainings that were free, you know, yeah. through, through the county. There's all these birth to five series. And I think it also depends on... Um, what agency you're at and what supervisor you have, um, how that becomes visible to you, but it's there, you know, there's so many offerings for free um, trainings on child development, trauma's impact on the brain, um, what atypical development looks like. I, I seem seeing all these trainings on like um, how to, how to help a family respond to sleep you know, and I, I, you ask an intern, you know, um, how do you help a family with a, an infant that isn't sleeping? Well, that's not my job. Then there's, there's, you know, like the, this is, I think, really crucial information and exposure to all the different things that are part of um, working with a parent-child dyad and, um, and, and learning how to uh, work with other disciplines as a team to support for early intervention and prevention. So I think that's a really, that's my favorite thing about community mental health is access to to training. Yeah, I think that that is a really good point because I think that sometimes, especially in the private practice world, we get bogged down by trying to find trainings that we can afford to take in all of the areas that we wanna do things, right? So that is a total benefit of working in the community mental health setting if, if everybody's setting you know, has all those resources, but um, of being able to say like, they are providing these trainings for free for our clinicians, like take advantage of those Mm -hmm. so that you can continue to grow in the things that are going to be most beneficial for our clients. Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking about it now and I don't know if I've really taken the time to, to feel that gratitude. But um, in that specific way, but really, I mean, I am the clinician I am because of community mental health. 
really. I mean, supervisors also um, should also really appreciate that. Um, but trainings, I mean, I, I wouldn't have the expertise that I have without all of that for free. So, yeah. And thinking about your work with that young infant mental health population for because it is so systemic, right? Like we we aren't trying to um, just navigate the zero to five year olds in that process. We're navigating everybody who is nap who is working with that kiddo um, from family to siblings to all sorts of things what are some of the ways that you have noticed there being um i don't know barriers is probably my best word to your interns getting how um how that system is so vital i think a lot of our the reason i'm asking this to back up is like there i feel like a lot of our training in mental health is individual focused Mm -hmm. Right. And when we're talking about zero to five, we really are talking about a system. Um, What barriers have you seen to them kind of making that switch to thinking about working in a system? You know, I don't know if this is a direct answer to that, um, but I think that if interns and there are clinicians who have zero interest in working with the birth to five population, and that's okay, um, I think. You know, we all need to have our specific nation population for us to be like effective. And community mental health is like, here's everyone. Yeah. You'll figure out how to work with everyone and it'll be okay. <laughs> um, and that's okay. Um, but I think, you know, if you, if you haven't done those trainings that I just talked about and you haven't had exposure to thinking about um, how to support a pre-verbal infant, and really like having this aha moment that even though your client is the child, your client really is the whole family. Um, and, and there's, there is a switch that happens. And I think for me, um, until I started doing those trainings and really thinking that way through birth to five work, I didn't make the connection for older children. Oh, so yeah. I think there are many, 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 many professionals that will work with, um, a seven, eight, nine, ten through the lifespan okay. without prioritizing those collateral sessions. Wow. Um, I think in that language and community mental health, but without you really valuing and from the get go, like talking um, with your with your family um, after you're done with assessment and just saying, you know. Um, after this day doesn't end our relationship. A big part of treatment um, is going to be, you know, you and I really figuring Mm -hmm. out how to support Sally. Uh, I only see her one hour, 50 minutes a week. You see her the whole rest of the week. You know, that that is so important to actual change. Um, So I think really having that conversation from the start and understanding how important that is. And, And outside of just the parents, you know, um, I think foster working in the foster care system um, with uh, um, children who are in out of home placement or in family preservation programs, you really are um, exposed to opportunities for thinking about larger mm-hmm. support the community. And I think it's interesting. Um, I've disciplines, different, you know, LCSW, uh, clinical social work programs versus um, marriage and family programs. There does tend to be 
a more uh, like teaching of, of a focus uh, on um, person and environment and exploring all the different people that you should be partnering with um, in a clinical social work program. Um, so I've really enjoyed fostering that kind of thinking as I work with um, AMFT interns. Mm-hmm. I think that's that's interesting. But yeah, I think it's an opportunity to think that way because it, is, it isn't, I think, through supervision, right? So you get opportunities to think about it that way through trainings and those required contacts that you have to have with the social worker. Um, but then in supervision, really having um, exposure to conversations like, what was your conversation like with the uh, with the biological mother? Uh-huh. Well, I can talk to the biological mother. Oh, well, that's, you know. Well, tell me, tell me why, you know, that didn't come up for you. And, um, you know, are there, are there reasons that that's not possible? Um, I think that's, it's really easy to do because you have so many clients, not all those different people. Especially in community mental health, where you do have all of those clients, where like the the ratio of time you have to be able to do all of those collateral contacts and try and make that space um, is really for the client's best interest and is so hard to sneak into the rest of your day and get a hold of them when you have time to get a hold of them and ugh, all yeah. those pieces. And I think on the flip side, in, in private practice kind of model, um, we we do get so focused on just the client and just that treatment plan that we absolutely forget about like, well, who else is in their circle? Who else is a part of their system and who can be helping them? Who is, you know, causing some some rough edges that maybe, maybe need to be worked out? What, what else is happening here besides just this person um, yeah. and, and what's going on with them? What, you know, no matter the age, but I, I think I see it the most in my supervisees who work with kids under 14 who... Mm don't have uh, like for Oregon our state of consent is is 14 for for teens to come into therapy by themselves um, but the kiddos under 14 I, I see the struggle in them of like oh I don't want to have to talk to their parent the kiddo is my client like this is really the thing um, and and not that they wouldn't talk to the parents and they know that they need to but I think that they get so wrapped up in in this time with this this one human that they forget that if we don't change things about the environment, if we don't involve those people in engaging in the growth of the human you you are tied to, it, it's going to be messy. There's also, I'll just name it. There's also, um, if you work with kids almost exclusively, um, kids are really forgiving and accepting and are generally just there to play and learn. And it's you that are making it the therapeutic experience. Like Mm -hmm. they don't, you know, they're, they're typically not very judgmental. Parents are scary, you know? (laughs) So like, what if I talk to this parent and they find out that I actually don't know what I'm doing? Yes. There's this fear. I I remember it and it sometimes still creeps up in me. I think talking to, if your focus is kids, there is this intimidation, this fear that you won't be able to explain what you're doing or feel like you have to explain everything that you're doing. Um, And it's hard, you know, like if, if you discover in talking to the parents that like, oh, whew, there's a lot more to do here than I thought that was just focused on the child. And I don't know how to do that. And I don't want to. 
I don't know how. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I can say, you know, I get that. Yeah. Do you think that that is um, more intense in a community mental health placement because of how often like the Department of Human Services is involved or some of those other elements? Like I, I, I'm envisioning it being like, it feels like more eyes are watching than maybe in private practice. Oh, um, you mean like judgmental, judging mm -hmm. eyes, evaluative mm -hmm. eyes? Um, I wouldn't say so. I would say um, uh, mostly people will defer to you. And that's, I think that's part of what um, I've been trying to teach the, the interns is um, many of the CSWs, the children's social workers, and this is actually pretty scary, honestly, um, but they have a bachelor's only. You know, like, and that's not to say that they're, you know, any less talented, but, you know, they don't, they don't know what you know. So you, you have to channel the, the expertise that you have and yeah. communicate that and advocate for your, um, for your, for your clients. And, you know, if you discover that the, the social worker is um, doing the best they can, but making recommendations that are not in your, in your client's best interest, let them know that and, and give them the information. You know, that's part of our, our jobs as advocates um, for the family and the child. Um, so yeah, no, my experience tends to be that um, they're very much deferring to our clinical expertise. Um, and once I learned that, I think I was much more relaxed about interacting. Um, and then, you know, you've got the regional center um, that we work with really often with birth to five. And it's the same, you know, that those, they have their expertise in very different areas. And usually it's the coordinator that we're talking to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's just developing, it is, it's a skill, um, but developing how to talk about what you're doing and how to, um, how to give um, information to support, you know, bringing in additional support and advocate. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like a lot of that when we're when we're working with our supervisees comes from helping them build confidence mm -hmm. and thinking about, like, why are we recommending this thing? Can you explain it well to me? Because if you can explain it well to me, you can explain it to absolutely anyone. And yeah. let's keep practicing for why you're recommending this versus this. Right. You know, the social worker recommended this type of thing. You're recommending something different. Just give me a reason why. Let's talk about it because you know why or yes. else you wouldn't be recommending it. So let's build yeah. that confidence to say, you know, yeah, I, I understand why they would recommend this. And here's what I would I would say let's do first or let's do in this in this place, um, because everybody only knows what they know. And you may be teaching people something brand new that is available to them that they may not have already known about, which is which is a great opportunity for us to continue to advocate not only for our, our individual clients, but for the system at large as we take those trainings that are offered from um, from different places, as well as just learn things on our own as we're growing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We only know what we know. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I live that every day. I'm just doing my yeah. best. I know what I know. And then <laughs> when I know something else, I will deal with that then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's there's lots of, um, that's another benefit if we're staying positive about community mental health. There, there's just, there's so much growth that can happen so quickly and you build so many skills, um, sometimes all at once. Um you're drinking from a fire hose for like a year, uh, but 
yeah, it, it gives you such a, an opportunity to, to think about the work yeah. in, a, um, in a really broad way that I think you, you would have to actively seek out in private practice. You wouldn't Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I am so grateful for our time today. I feel like I learned a lot about reflective practice and I am going to be thinking about how I ask questions to <laughs> my, um, to my supervisees um, and how not in, and even more so how I don't ask questions, how I give them, you know, space to really think through what they're going through in those sessions. Um, and I, I like that we really honored the community mental health system here today because I do think that it, it has an, a really important place in our society um, and in the work that we do in mental health and in the training that we do with our supervisees. Um, so I'm grateful for that. Let me, let's talk about the things that you have going on and how people can find you and get a hold of you. Okay. Yeah. Um, so outside of community mental health, I have a private practice where I'm putting in all of the expertise that I gathered through 10, 11 years, I think it's 11 years in community mental health and really offering that to, um, to the community. So parent coaching is something that I can offer to anyone, anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and that can be for any different reason, really parents that are struggling with really typical, but typical should not minimize <laughs> Nope. The challenges that we work with uh, when we're parenting one, two, three, and four-year-olds with um, with strong personalities. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, or it can be something maybe more um, more like trauma or a big change, a divorce, a move across country that is just um, throwing off your your child's ability to cope. Yeah. Um, and then the dyadic play therapy, so working with the parent and child together in therapy for, for more um, challenging maybe mental health issues um, or parents that need one-on-one support and through modeling and, and a more directive approach. Um, I offer that. I'm licensed in the state of California, and I'm doing that here. I offer for professionals really anywhere, um, but particularly in California, I I can offer um, the reflective practice consultation hours towards endorsement with the California Center um, as an infant mental health, infant family, early childhood mental health specialist. (laughs) It's the credential. (laughs) It is a mouthful. Um, yes, but putting together a group right now, actually, for anyone who is interested in reflective practice consultation. Very cool. And they can find you at powerofpausetherapy.com, right? Uh, yes, that's right. Yay. Perfect. We'll put that in the show notes. Um, and then hopefully folks will find you and, and ask questions from there and, and get to know the great services that you provide. Oh, thanks so much. Absolutely. Well, everybody, it has been wonderful to chat with you all today. I hope that you grabbed some good um, lessons out of today and we'll see you all next time. Wasn't that an amazing episode? I feel like Nikki really hit on some incredible points that we need to take away for today. Our first takeaway is thinking about reflection and supervision. Many times we can be caught up in just going client after client after client and we forget to really address the person who is doing this hard work in supervision. So 
making sure that today you watch yourself in supervision and see how often you are connecting with the supervisee. How often are you asking about their feelings and experiences as they arise during their supervision, during their their therapy with a client, uh, making sure that you are looking at what are the other factors that are happening in their lives and in their position to continue to build the rapport, um, as well as understand how that might impact clients. Um, she used the, these terms embracing silence and curiosity uh, to help us really be thoughtful about our experience in supervision with our supervisees. And the second takeaway today, I think you all are going to love, although you may laugh at me for trying to make you do this, um, I'm going to remind you to do some self-care. Uh, Nikki, I really encourage therapists and supervisors to evaluate their own well-being um, as well as their feelings about their caseload in order to make sure that they are taking care of themselves in, in this part of this process. Um, so what I would encourage is right after this uh, episode that you just take five minutes to take a, take time to really analyze how are you doing? What do you need? Um, it can be basics like, do you need to go to the restroom? Do you need some water? Do you need some air from outside in the world? Or do you need to take time to read a book or just uh, connect with someone that you love? Uh, take a few minutes today and do something to care for yourself uh, as part of your takeaway. So I am going to do that right after I get off of this episode. I am going to go take a quick little walk outside and feel the fresh air and uh, feel the sun on my face. And I hope that you take a moment today to do what you need to to take care of yourself. All right. Until next time, folks. This has been Supervision Smorgasbord with Dr. Tara Sanderson. Please like and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. You can find us at drterrasanderson.com backslash podcast and on all social media at Dr. Tara Sanderson. Thank you and we will see you next time.